Well, the passage before us this morning in Isaiah is a very complex passage, so I won't be able to get too much into the details, but it is a very glorious passage because it really gets at the heart of everything. And when I say that this passage gets at the heart of everything, I mean it really gets at the heart of everything. It gets at the heart of the most ultimate questions. Why do we exist? Who is God? Why does God interact with man in the first place? These sort of questions are the questions that are addressed by the passage before us now. One passage that has been especially important upon my life and that was important for me in my conversion is Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, which says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So this answers the question for us, why did God create us? Who are we? We are created for the glory of God. That's why we are here. It tells us also the purpose of God's great acts of redemption. Why does he desire to save people? What is God's ultimate goal in all that he does? Isaiah 43, 21, it says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So this is why God saves us, so that we'll declare his praise. And lastly, it even goes to the very nature of God. What is it that makes God so different from us? Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 13, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you were my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And so we have these glorious passages about how great God is, about why he created us, about his purpose in saving us. Again, it is a beautiful passage. But what I want to do to try to simplify it this morning to try to get across, I think, what is the heart of this passage is I want to try to condense the main message of this into one phrase, and then we're just going to look at this phrase for the rest of the message. That one phrase that I want us to to capture that I think expresses the heart of this passage is that God saves you so that you will see his glory and declare his praise. God saves you so that you will see his glory and declare his praise. Again, there's a lot more going on here that I wish we could get into. You could do 10 sermons just on this passage right here. But for this morning, I just want to look at this one statement, that God saves you so that you will see his glory and declare his praise. I'm going to break this down into three different chunks. So first, what does it mean to say that God saves you? What is this salvation that I am referring to and that Isaiah speaks of in this passage? Second, what does it mean to see God's glory? And then third and last, what does it mean to declare God's praise? So God saves you so that you will see his glory and declare his praise. And we're going to look at each of those three main parts in the message this morning. So first, 
What does it mean that God saves us? What does it mean that God saves us? Because this passage is so poetic, don't expect a a dictionary definition. Rather, what Isaiah gives us are a series of images of salvation. It's through these images that we come to infer, that we come to know what salvation is through the pictures that he provides. And so I want to look at three different sections in the verses, three different sections in the verses that we're looking at this morning. First and the clearest one, I think, is Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 21. So I want to see the picture of salvation that we're given in Isaiah 43, 16 to 21. It says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So in those first two verses, just notice the allusion we have here to the Exodus, when God rescued his people from Egypt. You'll remember that he rescued his people through the parting of the Red Sea. And that's why in verse 16 it says, "...who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters." And you'll remember what happened when God opened up the sea? Well, the Egyptian horsemen and chariots rushed into the sea, and then God closed up the waters. And so verse 17, "...who brings forth a chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick." So this is the paradigmatic event of salvation in the Old Testament. If you want to see God's salvation anywhere, you look to the Exodus. You see what God did there. And so this is the salvation that Isaiah is referring to in these verses. But then remember, now see what Isaiah goes on to say in verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So he's saying, what came before that work of the Exodus that I performed? Just put that to one side. Don't think about that right now. And then verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so this is the new salvation. This is the new thing that God is bringing about. It's even better. It's even greater than the old salvation, which was the Exodus. And what is this new salvation? What does it mean to be saved in this way? Again, it's just a a big picture image that Isaiah gives us. It means having a way in the wilderness. It means rivers in the desert. It means water in the wilderness, and it means giving drink to my chosen people at the end of verse 20. So the image of salvation that we are given is the image of flourishing coming out of barrenness, life coming out of deadness. This is the picture of salvation that Isaiah gives. And yet, what is this water? What is this life that is coming out of the wilderness? Well, I think if we look at the last three lines, so verse 21 and the line right before it, I think we get the clearest picture of what this salvation most essentially is. When it says, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. 
that they might declare my praise. So what is this drink that God is giving? Well, the text doesn't give us a straightforward answer to that question, but when the text says, the people whom I formed for myself, we can understand this to mean that inherent in our salvation, inherent in this drink that God is giving in the wilderness is the gift of himself. Because the people were formed for myself. And so how could it be that God would give water in the wilderness, drink to his chosen people, if it did not involve giving them the very thing that they were made for? So the salvation that Isaiah is talking about, what it means to be saved in this context, is that we who were dead, lifeless wilderness suddenly come into contact with the very thing that we were made for. We come into contact with God himself, the people whom I formed for myself, God says. And so we go from a dry and barren wilderness to being a land that is plentiful with water, rivers in the desert. This is the first image of salvation that I want us to see here in Isaiah. Or we could back up a little bit to Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 5. You can turn there now. Isaiah 43, verse 1, begins with the words, But now, thus says the Lord. Now this, but now, is the same context that we had later in chapter 43, when he says, Remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. So when he says, but now, he's contrasting something new that he is doing with something that has come before. And what is the thing that came before that God is reversing? Well, we can see it clearly in verses 18 to 25. I'm not going to read all of that, but just look in verse 22 for an example. It says, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to restore, spoil with none to say restore. This is the condition that people are in before God's salvation. In verse 24, you see the same language repeated. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So this is the state of man, this is the state of God's people before salvation. It's like a people plundered and looted, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. This is the wilderness that Isaiah speaks of just a little bit later on in this chapter that we just looked at. And so what does God promise in response to this state of affairs? Again, what is salvation when the people just seem to be utterly desolate in this way? Again, 43 verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, 
Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. In other words, God's response to the desolation of his people to their lostness in sin, to all the consequences of sin that they are experiencing, his response to all this is God drawing the people to himself, is God being with them. The salvation that God provides is not God saying, well, I will make you strong again. It's not even saying that I will remove your sin from you. No, salvation is God drawing them to himself. He says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God takes possession of his people. This is salvation. That we come into a relationship with the Holy One of Israel, the God of all creation. This is why over and over in these verses, God says, fear not, I am with you. Or when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you because God is with you. In other words, when you are saved, you still may have many troubles in your life, many hardships in your life. Your life will not suddenly transform and go perfectly for you. But what will change, what will be different because of salvation is now you will know God. You will be in relationship with him. He draws you to himself. And so this is what salvation is for Isaiah. Again, this is the drink in the wilderness. This is what we most need, is to know God. One last passage that I want to look at in these verses to show us what salvation is. Chapter 44, verses 1 to 5. It says, But now hear, O my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. First, notice again the first two words in that verse. But now. God is saying, what's happened before is one thing, but I am doing a brand new thing, a great new salvation I am bringing. Now, what is this great new salvation? Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call upon the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and and name himself by the name of Israel. You see, again, salvation is spoken of here as coming into relationship with Yahweh himself, with God himself. And verse 3 even makes it more pointed when he says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. This is how great, how deep the relationship will be. That the very spirit of Almighty God will be poured out upon his people. This is the salvation that God offers. And again, what will it be like? What will it feel like to our souls? It will feel like going from this dry and thirsty land 
to a place that is abundant and flowing with streams precisely because we have come to know the God of all the earth. Now, I believe that because Isaiah envisions salvation in this way, this is also why he spends so much time talking about the glory of the Lord himself. Because if the Lord is not glorious, then coming to know the Lord itself is not glorious, correct? It's only if God himself is glorious and is able to satisfy us that coming into relationship with him is a wonderful thing indeed. And so just have a taste of what Isaiah says about the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 43, again, the second half of verse 10. God says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. What God is saying in these verses is how utterly unique he is. That not only is there no human like him, but he says before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So there is no human like him and there is also no God like him. He is utterly unique in all of existence. And then verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. You see, for God, when he says this statement, I am God, it is an assertion of his utter uniqueness because there is no other God. For God to be God means he is utterly unique, means he is above every other thing, means that he can declare and save and proclaim unlike anything else in all of existence because he alone is God. And then verse 13 puts the ultimate point on it. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Beloved, there is no one stronger than the Lord. He is utterly sovereign. He is utterly other. He is utterly pre-existent. He is utterly different than you and me. We were created for him, to know him. The greater our thoughts of God, the greater our estimation of God, the greater our reverence of God, the more happy our hearts will be. Because we cannot think two great thoughts of God and his majesty. Isaiah hammers home this point of God's glory one more time at the very end of our passage for this morning, Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. These are the verses we read just before the sermon. It says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. You see, beloved, we must understand that when we come into the presence of God, we are coming into the presence of a being who is utterly unlike anything else in all of existence. I know that because Jesus has come and because we have come to see the goodness and the love of Jesus, perhaps it is very easy for us to think of God merely in human terms. 
But we must understand that Jesus, in his coming, was a representation of this Holy One, of this preexistent One, of the One who is the first and the last. And Jesus Christ, even now, is sitting in the heavens and is reigning at the Father's right hand. God is more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. Just like we sang in our song before the message that he can number every grain of sand. He holds the planets and the stars in place. He is the one who knows all things and can do all things. This is the God of the universe and no one compares to him. And so when Isaiah speaks of salvation, he speaks of coming into relationship with this God. He speaks of this God, the God of all glory, saying that we are his and that he will be with us no matter what we go through. This is salvation indeed. Jesus himself speaks of salvation in this way. John 10 verse 10 Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Think of that as the wilderness. And then Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is life lived in light of God's glory. It is life abundant. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To know God is to know life. It is to have everything that we need. All the world around us could fall apart, but if we have God, then we have enough. And so he is our salvation. So again, God saves us so that we will see his glory and declare his praise. So now I want to move on to this second part of that statement. What does it mean to see God's glory? You can see how the first part, how we talk about salvation, leads immediately into this second part, that we would see God's glory. The way we understand salvation is coming into God's presence in this way will shape how we understand seeing God's glory. Again, in one sense, seeing God's glory is salvation. It is what we are made for. But it is just staggering how important this idea of seeing God's glory is to Isaiah. Now, the primary image that Isaiah uses when he talks about sight is he talks about blindness being removed or deafness being removed. So let me read just a few of the verses in this passage that point us to Isaiah's uh, understanding of seeing the glory of God. First, in Isaiah 42, in verse 7, when Isaiah is talking about the work of the Messiah and what he will do, Isaiah 42, verse 7 says, one thing he will do is he will open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. Then 42 verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. 
the rough places into level ground. So again, the blind are those whom God comes to save, those whom he comes to rescue. The beginning of verse 18, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. And then 43 verse 8, we see the language again. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. So the natural condition of mankind is blindness, is an inability to see God's glory, is an inability to behold him. Now, what is this blindness, most ultimately a blindness to? Again, Isaiah, with his poetic language, doesn't give us kind of a dictionary answer, but he does, I think, give us the best answer we can see in 42, verses 18 and 19. When he says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Then he says, Who is blind but my servant? And I think here he's talking about the people of Israel. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord. Now again, what is he blind to? Verse 20, he sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is the blindness is complete. What is he blind to? He is blind to literally everything. He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. In other words, he can see the outward shape of things. He can see reality for what it is. It's just he has no idea what it is all about, what is behind it, why it is important, what it all means. Everything is a mystery to him. His blindness is blindness to the ultimate realities of the universe. In fact, this blindness is so great, we get this staggering statement in verse 25, where it says, So he, that is God, poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Imagine being a person so blind that you are actually set on fire and yet you cannot understand that you are on fire. This is the extent of the blindness that God is addressing in salvation. And as Isaiah repeats over and over again, the glory and the greatness of God, we must conclude that the one thing that they are most ultimately blind to is the ultimate reality in all the universe. It is God himself. This is their blindness. Even though God created all things, even though he sustains all things, even though he has set apart this people for himself, even though he has done all these things, God's people cannot see God. They are blind to him. They are blind to his ways, blind to his goodness. And so, on the other hand, what it means to see God's glory must mean that we are able to see him as the most significant thing in all of reality. When we see God's glory, it means that we see just how other he is, just how perfect he is, just how unique he is in all of existence. We see his greatness. This is what it means to see God's glory. 
that we are so overwhelmed by his power, by the centrality of all that he is for existence itself, that our lives are transformed and we understand that we must live for him in every way. Now, I think one reason why Isaiah just hammers home this idea of blindness to sight is because Isaiah himself had this experience. When we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, we remember that Isaiah himself came and saw the glory of the Lord. And so Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 3 say, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah had this vision of God's glory. He was able to see God's glory in such a way that he saw how God was totally separate, was totally distinguished from anything else on earth. This vision of him was so awe-inspiring that we get these words that are almost beyond comprehension that defy the laws of physics, like the train of his robe filling the temple, like these beings that are entirely otherworldly with six wings and all that they're doing around the throne of God, constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is what it means to see the glory of God. We come to understand deep in our bones something of his majesty, something of his goodness, something of this reality that we are made for him and apart from him, we cannot be satisfied. The New Testament tells us that Christ came precisely so that we would be able to see God's glory. In 1 Corinthians it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, when we behold Jesus Christ in the word, when we behold Jesus Christ in the story that he is writing in our own lives and across the pages of history, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is why God has saved us, precisely so that we could see his glory, so that we could come to know his goodness and his excellence and his sweetness and his majesty in every good quality that our souls most desperately need. And so God saved us so that we would see his glory. Now the third part of the phrase that I'm expounding this morning, God saves you so that you will see his glory and declare his praise. 
In other words, God has done this work of taking us from wilderness to fertile ground, of taking us from no connection to God to intimately connected with God. And he has allowed us to see his glory, to see himself with one great end in mind, that we would declare his praise. This is what God wants. This is why God has done his awesome works of salvation, so that there would be a people to declare his praise praise. Now Isaiah gets at this in two ways. He gets at this indirectly, kind of by example, and he gets to it directly by simply stating the fact that this is what God wants. And so if you go to Isaiah 43 verse 10, it says, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So notice in that verse there how God says that you are my witnesses. That is, you are to be a people who speak of my uniqueness, who speak of my glory, who speak of my reality to others. Because the rest of that verse fills out this idea of seeing the glory of God. He says, you are the one I've chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So as we come to know God, as we come to believe God, as we come to understand that God is the I am, then we become God's witnesses. We become people who speak of God to others. We see the same thing repeated in verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And so what are we witnesses to? Most fundamentally, we are witnesses to the greatness of God, the glory of God, the fact that God is, and that he is the one that our souls most need. We see this stated again plainly in 43 verse 21. It says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God wants to save people. God wants people to know him. He wants people to see his glory so that they can declare his praise. Until we see God's glory, until we are saved, we cannot truly declare his praise because it does not come from the depths of our heart. It does not come from our first-hand experience. Lastly, in Isaiah 44, verse 8, we see this statement again, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Again, beloved, if you are saved here this morning, if you have come to taste something of the goodness of God, then you are to be a witness to God's goodness. You are to tell others of how good he is, of how great he is. You are to proclaim his excellencies. Now, the other way that Isaiah talks about this fact that God saves us in order for us to be witnesses is simply by way of his example. And so if we go back to Isaiah 42, verses 10 to 13, again, this is the very beginning of the passage that we are looking at this morning. Notice the very first exhortation that comes our way in Isaiah 42, verse 10. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song, 
his praise from the ends of the earth. So Isaiah commands immediately, before he even begins to consider this great salvation, before he even begins to consider the glory of God, how God has welcomed us in and allows us to see his glory, he prefaces all of this by saying, sing to the Lord a new song. Beloved, our praise, our singing, is to rise spontaneously from our hearts. We don't merely sing because we have been commanded to or because God deserves it. Primarily, we sing because we have seen this great salvation and so we burst out into song. People sing when they are happy. People sing when they rejoice. And that is why we sing. Because God has worked this amazing salvation. Because we have glimpsed God's glory. And therefore, we cannot help but sing. And so Isaiah goes on from 10 to 13. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Those are desert cities. So God's saying, even those people who are in the desert, sing for joy. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. This is what we do as God's people because we are so thrilled with God's salvation. Verse 13 is just this beautiful uh, prophetic statement of God's salvation. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Beloved, this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. In sending Jesus Christ to die and to rise again and to defeat death itself, God has gone forth like a mighty man, full of zeal, and he has stomped down his foes. And so we rejoice. And so we sing because God has done such a glorious thing. And so... Beloved, my prayer for us this morning is that we would be a people who know salvation. And when I say we know salvation, I mean that we would be a people who know the goodness of God. That God would give us a glimpse of his majesty, of his glory. And that as he does that, that we would be a people whose mouths are quick to praise the Lord, quick to witness to the Lord's goodness and of all that he has done. Because, beloved, this is why he has saved us, that we would be a people who praise him from the deepest parts of our hearts because he is the God of all glory, the God of all majesty, and the God of all beauty. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do praise you for so great a salvation. We praise you, Lord, that even though we were indeed blind, we were indeed utterly unworthy of your favor, of your goodness shown to us, that you, Lord, nevertheless looked upon us and rescued us. God, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy at the salvation that you have given So much joy, Lord, that we would just sing spontaneously to you. God, teach us of your goodness. Teach us of your glory. 
so that we can praise you as we ought. Would you receive now, Lord, our prayers of confession, our prayers of intercession to you?